Hi Revive Stronger listeners, I want to take a moment of your time to make you aware of a very special event we are running shortly. On the 14th of July, Mike Isretel and Jared Feather from Renaissance Periodization will be joining us in London for a single day seminar covering the scientific principles of advanced hypertrophy. To purchase a ticket, see the link in the description box of this podcast episode. It will be amazing to see you there. As a listener of the podcast, we can guarantee you will absolutely love the exclusive content that will be presented at the seminar, going deep into things such as structuring your mesocycles nutritionally with your training as well to optimize muscle growth, plus extensive Q&As. So don't miss out. Get your ticket today. Hi guys, welcome to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and we have another exciting roundtable again with Eric Helms, Mena Henselmans, and Mike Isretel. And today we're talking again about hypertrophy, of course, and we're going to be talking about volume, intensity, and frequency, and how to practically apply those to yourself for hypertrophy and within your program. So to kick things off, I'm going to give it over to Eric Helms, who's going to kind of define each of these and then uh, Menno will talk about practical application, how he does that for his clients and himself. So if you want to take the floor, Eric. Sure. So volume, intensity, and frequency, I think uh, probably the biggest variables we need to pay attention to are global variables, if you will. Uh, volume is the total amount of work you do, um, and how you define it is actually kind of this problem that we're going to continue having for a little bit longer in the fitness field, I think. Um, it has been defined as sets times reps times load or tonnage, uh, which is the actual amount of weight you're lifting. Um, if you are looking at it in scientific literature, like the true calculation of work will include the range of motion traveled and involves more physics calculations that aren't relevant or rather realistic for what we do in the gym. Um, in terms of meta-analyses and systematic reviews looking at volume, they have looked at the total reps performed. Uh, in a given period of time, and also the total number of sets in a given period of time. Uh, one shortfall of this, but also interesting finding, is that most of the research done for hypertrophy is training to failure. So it's always comparing, which is useful, and that it's a fixed uh, intensity of effort all the time comparing sets. Um, and it allows us to potentially put sets on equal footing regardless of the repetition range based on our new findings or I'd say confirmed findings over the last decade uh, that um, if a set is pushed to an adequate intensity uh, after a certain rep range, it probably doesn't, it's probably quite similar in terms of stimulus. Let's say eight reps or more. If you're doing an eight rep set or maybe a 25, 30 rep set, they might have a similar level of stimulus because the aggregate uh, tension and stimulus that you would get would be the same once you've worked your way through all that volume and done the final uh, few reps or gotten close to them. Uh, so I think counting volume is as simple as counting hard sets for hypertrophy if you're working in that rep range. However, if you're looking at lower rep ranges, if you're kind of doing a power building routine or if you're using the 1 to 6, 1 to 8 RM range, it might be more useful to look at total reps in that zone. Uh, but for the most part, I think you can look at total number of hard sets. Um, that's the hard definition out of the way. Uh, frequency is just how many, for hypertrophy, I would say the best definition is how many times you train each muscle group per week. Um, and then finally, 
Um, uh, intensity, there's two types, intensity of effort, intensity of load. So there is the actual weight on the bar um, relative to what you can do. And then there is how close you take each set to failure, which would be RPE or RIR. Perfect. No, I think that was a fantastic. And yeah, volume is always kind of the joker of the pack. And um, I know there's coming out new ways to kind of think about these things like effective reps and things. So no, fantastic, Eric. And I'll, I'll hand it over to Menno to kind of talk about how you might practically apply each of these for hypertrophy. Um, I guess that might be quite a long way, um, a long answer, but uh, you can delve into it as you like. I'll uh, try to keep it as concise as possible. Um, I fully agree with Eric's definitions. Those are also the main ones uh, I use or how I define them when I work with clients. And um, I think for intensity, the main application is that there was this idea that there's this hypertrophy zone of six to 12 reps. Um, and if you go outside that, you lose out on gains. And it seems to be more like three to 30 reps uh, instead of six to 12. And uh, even then it's, it's debatable. So the latest research from a good study by Brad Schoenfeld suggests that uh, as long as you go to about 40% intensity and uh, you go close to failure or uh, ideally to failure, if you're using such a low load probably, then uh, you get a similar hypertroph hypertrophic response regardless of intensity. And with the um, 85 plus percent range, you may need to compensate by doing more sets because your repetition volume is so low. So there the um, the definitions uh, sort of merge a bit whether you should use total reps or total sets. Uh, but within the, um, say, five, 5 to 20 range or something, it's pretty safe to go by sets rather than uh, reps. And in terms of application, that means we should look at other uh, criteria, mostly for the determination of rep ranges, than just uh, is this good for muscle growth. So we do know higher intensities uh, are better for strength development, so that's one factor. Um, what remains to be investigated is if strength gains translate into greater hypertrophy gains in the future, which is something um, I do think is, is true, but uh, it seems to be a pretty small effect if, uh, if there is one. Uh, because we do know that you get, um, if you're stronger, you can apply more mechanical tension on the muscle fibers and you achieve greater levels of muscle activation. So at least it's plausible that this will translate in the long term to greater um, hypertrophy, if it allows you to perform more volume or reach higher levels of muscle activation. Um, there's also some research, scanned research, I should say, two studies, um, two trends, not even statistical significant ones, that suggest there is benefit to using multiple rep ranges instead of just one. And there is also um, uh, research that um, it depends on your individual genotype, whether you respond better to lower or higher reps. So that's where things get very tricky uh, and where, um, um, where I think it may still matter for some individuals if you go higher or lower reps in that we have uh, two great studies, uh, the Beaven study and um, one about the ACE genotype that um, show that certain individuals respond better to higher reps or more sets where others don't. There's also research that certain non-responders, for example, which is an endurance training, but probably similar. People that don't seem to get any gains from a certain volume do get um, the same level of development as the normal responders from a higher volume. Um, so there you have those applications, with, which is a take-home message for me is that 
you want to uh, apply multiple rep ranges. And what I do is I use a percentage system. So what many, many people do is they prescribe reps or uh, our lifting programs, you typically see intensity times weight. So you're going to do, you know, three reps with 80% of your one RM. Uh, but I actually prescribe the uh, proximity to failure and the percentage, which I think is a nice way to auto-regulate the reps because you have some individuals when you tell them, you know, the range is like three to 30 reps and you have them do 30 reps. But some individuals uh, actually go below the ideal intensity range at 30 reps because they, uh, even if you do have them work out with 50% of their max, they can only do like 12 reps. So, um, but it's actually still scientifically debatable if you should use reps or intensity to define the lower end of the intensity range. Um, yeah, and there's injury, um, injury potential. Lower, uh, lower reps, high intensities are much more injurious, much more stress on the connective tissue in general uh, compared to the same volume of uh, higher reps. Um, Volume-wise, uh, I like to use hard sets as uh, Eric said as uh, definition. Defining an optimal number here is tricky. Uh, I think the individual variability is so large and the mm. endpoint not so well established yet that I typically answer it's 10 to 30 sets per week per muscle group. That's a pretty damn broad range, but um, it depends on so many factors because we know that training to failure, for example, increases the recovery time of, um, I think it was normally 48 hours. And then when they train to failure, it was like 72 hours on average. Or it was actually 24 or 48. So it actually doubles the recovery time on average, I think. And then there's sleep. For 72. Yeah. So there's, there's sleep, stress, gender. Women seem to recover faster. Um, how advanced you are. Trained muscles seem to be more resistant to muscle damage uh, and have a higher regenerative potential. So um, I typically, based on these factors, I put some, someone within that 10 to 30 range and super hard gainers, like people with very bad compliance, uh, low quality diets as well. I may put them on the low end, like eight, maybe even eight sets or something, but I rarely go below uh, 10 if, if someone is interested in, in optimizing and truly maximizing the rate of muscle growth. Frequency, I'm not as um, a high frequency guy now, because um, I popularized the idea that, um, well, I actually, I would say my, consider myself a bit like what Markton Birkin did for meal frequency is that he showed a lot of people that there's an alternative way to go about programming. And it turned out to be uh, not more effective, but at least equally effective. Um, and it may be more effective to go with higher than um, traditional frequencies for in elite lifters, at least. Because all the research where we do find like significant benefits or very strong trends, like the Hartman study, the infamous Norwegian frequency project, and that's all very elite lifters. So um, at that level, it may become beneficial to go to frequencies of three plus per week per muscle group. And uh, research is quite firm, I'd say quite established that you need at least two for most trained individuals, two sessions per week. Um, one is going to be the true bottom end for basically anyone, I'd say. And um, there is a range there. So volume is definitely the key one and frequency impacts volume. So that's, an, that's definitely an important one. If you change your frequency, you will almost inevitably in practice affect your training volume because uh, what many people do for one instance is they think high frequency training is about 
the total amount of times you're in the gym instead of the total amount of times you train a muscle group. So they have a certain program for four days a week and they're going to do high frequency training. They do that program, but six times. And then they actually basically uh, multiply their volume by uh, 150%. So um, that will certainly affect your progression, but mostly because of the change in volume instead of the change in frequency. But even if you split, say, Monday's workout of uh, quad work and of leg presses, squats, and leg extensions, and you split that out over Monday, Wednesday, Friday, then you're going to do more volume because normally if you leg extensions after squats and the leg presses, you're fatigued, so your repetition volume is a lot lower. Uh, but whereas if you do the leg extensions separately on Friday, you're going to do more reps, so you're uh, doing a higher volume. And that may also affect your progression, I, I think. Uh, although actually a recent study that... Um, did not equate for volume this way, uh, did, not, did not find a statistically significant advantage of the higher frequency protocol, but it was a pretty very weird program with the same exercise performed five days in a row to failure, I think, and um, statistical power was probably a concern. So I would say that if you increase volume regardless of mechanism, whether it's by rest intervals or training frequency or um, well, almost any kind of a mechanism more volume up to the point that you can recover and super compensate for it means more muscle growth perfect no i think that was a, a great kind of summary of your, your a very broad summary because obviously individualization is huge so you kind of talked about the 10 to 30 sets in terms of volume uh, focusing on a range of repetitions more so kind of six plus repetitions um, and then going up to maybe 30, but making sure those higher repetitions are closer to failure. Um, didn't touch on relative intensity, Menno. I don't know if you've got any kind of ideas behind relative intensity, whether you kind of stay away from failure or uh, push that very often. Right, so um, proximity to failure, as I often uh, like to call it, um, not to confuse it with uh, efforts like RPE or um, RP, you know, depends on the definition you give it. Uh, I tend to that one's pretty good too. Yeah, I typically use reps to failure, uh, but it's sort of the same thing. It only it diverges. Exactly the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it only diverges if you're talking about zero repetitions in reserve. Is that you're actually going to failure, or is that you have you could not do any more reps, but you have completed all your reps? That's why I don't like repetitions in reserve. It's like the zero one is the, the vague one for me. It's hard. It's hard being that pedantic. I understand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But anyway, um, I think that training to failure, basically what the research, the nice ones are two studies that basically look at training to failure, same volume, um, not training to failure, and same set count, not to failure, which means less volume. And then you find training to failure does benefit muscle growth, and strength development, actually super weak trends, probably very negligible benefits, especially because your technique is bound to break down. Um, but there seems to be a benefit for muscle growth, and it's mainly because of the extra volume you're doing, but it comes with a very significant extra um, increase in recovery uh, need. So I typically stay one to three reps uh, away from failure to optimize that ratio of muscle stimulation to fatigue. And if, you know, if someone's in the gym like two times a week, then I just say, you know, go to failure, man, because recovery is not going to be your issue. But if you are training every day full body or something, and you are a bodybuilder that's pushing everything to the limit, you probably don't want to do everything to failure because you're going to burn out really quick. Perfect. And um, Mike, have you got any kind of different thoughts on what Menno said? Um, do you practically apply that any differently? 
Yeah, one thing I want to point out is that a, a lot of the studies comparing failure to non-failure training, it's really hard to figure out if it's the failure that made the difference because uh, one problem is uh, from my reading of the literature, almost all of the studies give a volume that is usually significantly below the midpoint of that 10 to 30, even the 10 to 20 range. You basically know these people are being underdosed. And then the failure condition basically results in usually, like Menno said, a little bit more strength, quite a bit more hypertrophy, not quite a bit, but more and more hypertrophy. And, um, you know, is that because that they're just getting closer to what I would call their maximum adaptive volume or stimulus? Like, it's just like less left in the tank. And the other people are leaving way ton of the tank. So I think because because it's really difficult to study, it's going to take a while to really figure that out from a science perspective. Luckily, in practice, we already know a lot about it. So what you would need is you would need to take individuals either across a broad range of volumes or really find what I would term their maximum recoverable volumes, get sort of close to those in training, and then compare failure training versus non-failure training with what would really be a challenging taxing and real-world volume right? Something like a business volume. Because if you're doing eight sets per week per body part, and one of the conditions is four reps from failure, one is two failure. I mean, I would, if I was doing eight sets per week only for all the body parts, I'd go to failure too. Like Menno said, I mean, is this recovery is not a limiting factor, but that study supposition that recovery is not a limiting factor is an absurd supposition for transfer to all, most lifters that would listen to your podcast, Steve, or would subscribe to the 3DMJ newsletter, et cetera. Most of those folks are looking for like, you know, they're ready to put in the work and they're doing a lot of stuff. And, and for them, real world recovery is in fact a concern. And, and that's where failure training really starts to come in and, and show some disadvantages. I think to all of us here in practice, I don't want to speak for anybody, but like people, yeah, you hear some interesting recommendations every now and again for you well-meaning evidence-based folks that say like, you know, on the big compound movements, but you don't want to go to failure, but on the accessories, you can just go to failure all the time. It's not, some people say like, you can go to failure or not. It doesn't matter because of the studies. We get like in a beginner untrained individuals who train at half of their volume capacity. Sure. <laughs> but for folks training hard, especially the more advanced you get, I mean, like for me at my current level of development, wave my own advanced flag, um, a, a set to true muscular failure would be a religious experience. Like one set, um, it, you know, uh, I mean, you guys ever see someone go to failure on the leg press, like true failure with, mm -hmm. with 600 pounds, but there's some shit you don't want to see every day and you don't want to be that person. <laughs> so, I mean, that, that, that's a huge amount of fatigue. And it, we know that it doesn't yield, it yields maybe 10% more growth per per unit of volume. Uh, but the fatigue is, I don't know, in my uh, estimate, maybe, maybe double or something like that uh, so so the training to failure thing is something that if you try it and you start to get more intermediate and more experience you will very quickly realize that this whole idea that oh but you can train to failure or not it doesn't matter that shit just goes right out the fucking window what you end up doing is if you're really ideologically committed to training to failure all the time like like uh, high intensity training people, you end up trading a shitload of volume off for the ability to train. Bodybuilders at a high level who do hit, which are very few of them, end up doing like one or two working sets per body part because they simply can't recover from anymore. That's a very different question of can they benefit from more if they reduce the reps in reserve? Uh, I would say the answer is almost certainly yes because the link between volume 
and uh, hypertrophy versus the link between failure and hypertrophy, uh, I'd bet the volume, any way you could add more volume still sticking in a decent RIR would be a better trade-off for most people. And never mind the injury trade-offs. I mean, holy shit. Um, you, the closer you get to failure, especially the more high level you get, uh, you're just rolling the dice on that shit as far as injury is concerned. Um, with uh, everything else, I um, and I suppose I'm not even contradicting uh, Menno, but everything else I, Menno said is uh, right on the money, and uh, Eric as well. Um, I usually do the 10 to 20 sets, but uh, you know that's like fucking <laughs> the 20s is from my experience working with people, and I think um, that's actually for males. I do 10 to 20, and I am kind of doing that thing where like, look, if I was wrong and it's really 25 is the average maximum recoverable volume. Uh, okay, people find that anyway because I give instructions as to how to find that. But I don't want to uh, recommend like uh, you know 35 as the average MRV and have just people just fall out of the sky like Icarus all the time and be like, Dr. Mike said, and then I blew my arm off. Uh, and I think females have, in my view, females have an MRV of somewhere between five and 10 sets per week higher than males from my training experience. I mean, it's like significantly, like if you're one of the things I say, if you're a male and you're writing programs, especially for smaller female lifters that have been training a while, so their, their work capacity is high, but maybe genetically just not super strong, you'll write programs as far as volume that look like a mistake to you. You're like, there's no fucking way you're doing 10 sets of chest every other day. And they're like, yep, not sore, recovering great, making great gains. And like, okay, I guess I just got to write that down. So I think the cool thing about understanding all this from a theoretical basis, like the guys mentioned, is if you only approach things from your own practical experience, you're going to approach things like you approach them, which is good for your physiology, et cetera. But if you approach it from an evidence-based perspective, then you can realize that some shit that you program will look pretty fucking weird to you. But if the numbers work out and if the person's recovering and they're making progress, I, you know, the variation is really high. Perfect. And Eric, have you got any comments on that and if you don't um you can talk about kind of where you think periodization within all of this comes hmm. yeah i honestly i don't i really don't have a lot to add to that um i could we could anecdote go off on sideways track about why women can do more volume or discuss rir but i don't think we need to um yeah so periodization i think i really like the really really simple definition from buford 2007 it just means changing variables over time um, and uh, I like to use a more simple definition when we're talking hypertrophy because I think complex periodization is really not needed. It's more about just fatigue management um, and intelligent distribution of training and then progression, right? Um, so in practice, what I do uh, with, with periodization with clients, well, first I'll start with, with, with the literature. Um, right now, we don't have great data on periodization for hypertrophy because very few study designs are designed to maximize hypertrophy. Um, at best, you see them designed to maximize hypertrophy within the context of what the researchers and the participants are willing to commit to the lab time. So that might be like the best three-day, one-hour split we can do, um, which is very useful for any like uh, serious fitness person who, who wants hypertrophy or, or like personal trainers who you're never going to get your client in there more than three times a week for an hour. Um, and if it does, it's, it's, it's rare. Uh, so not that that's not useful, but that we don't have great hypertrophy program, like periodization comparison. So the meta analysis we have showing that it really doesn't matter 
whether or not or how you periodize training for hypertrophy. It's more of a meta-analysis saying that oh, all these strength programs that we periodize don't make a difference in hypertrophy. So that that, that may or may not be helpful. I, I think um, at the very least, we know that we need progressive overload and that based on the requirements that we just discussed for volume, intensity, and frequency, you need to think about training configuration. Uh, and then since we're talking about hypertrophy on this channel, you know, we're talking about a lot of competitive bodybuilders, powerlifters trying to make it to the next level by being bigger and highly motivated individuals, we're going to need to think about fatigue management and we're probably going to be pushing the boundaries of what is appropriate. So that means we're going to have to have some kind of, of, of cycling of, of different stimuli uh, to just as a kind of a safe bet. So what that might look like, there's a lot of ways you can do it. Um, you can pick a volume that you think is useful to start with someone uh, and then an appropriate frequency based on their schedule, how to divvy it up. So you're meeting kind of the requirements of at least 10 sets per muscle group, at least twice per week, and then matching the uh, repetition ranges and zones based on one thing we didn't talk about before is certain exercises just aren't suited to high, high versus low rep training. Like you're not going to do fives with curls and you're not going to do 30s with deadlifts unless you're Doug Miller and you just like screw it. I'm Doug Miller. I can do 30s on deadlift. Um, but for the most part, like the heavy compound lifts, you're probably going to be hitting in that 6 to 12 range. And then a lot of your more isolation movements and your accessories, you can probably work in that 10 to 20 range for the most part. I think that's there's exceptions, obviously, but that's a, a broad thing I could say. So that's how you'll set up your, your base structure, if that's kind of what your, your program looks like between volume, intensity, and frequency. How you progress it, that's, that's the big question because you don't just keep it static. Uh, you can certainly keep it static and just try to make incremental increases in uh, load and reps. And I think that's fine uh, so long as it works. Um, and there will be times where it does and doesn't work. For your first couple of years, it might work just fine. It might provide optimal progress. I'd even argue that it, it probably could. Um, if you've gone through a cycle of heavy strength training and you come back to that, it might work very well. You know, if you haven't touched all these isolation movements for a while as a kind of a volume cycle it might work just fine just to progress load and reps incrementally when you can. Um, but other times you're probably based on your training age, you're not going to be able to actually see the needle move just trying to do that. So there may be other strategies you need to do. I know that, uh, Mike often will do a incremental increase in sets across the week. Um, and I think that's certainly acceptable. You just need to be careful about that because that, you know, let's say you have doing three sets on everything from a body workout and you go to four, uh, you know, that's a, a one third increase in the volume you're used to. Um, you know, so uh, you have to kind of start on the lower end before you're going to start jumping up instead of doing what most people would probably do is start where they, it's already hard because they don't want to go lower than that ever and then go up which could cause problems. So you have to have a little bit of um, systematic intelligence, I would say, and, and, and awareness of what you can handle and where you should be before you start increasing sets like that. Um, other progression patterns uh, that, that we've talked about before and, and that I often use will be a linear progression within a mesocycle, linear meaning that the uh, reps will go down as the weight climbs up. That way, instead of having to make an incremental increase in load every week, uh, you can do something like having your three by eight to go up every fourth week or something like that by the smallest load increment, which is a little more appropriate as you get more advanced. Um, and yeah, shifting in from, from mesocycles of low moderate rep training to high rep training can also be useful trying to just add reps. 
um, as that can allow you to, um, you know, adding one rep from 20 to 21 is a much smaller percentage increase in progressive overload than going from six to seven. You know, one's a one-sixth increase in strength, one's a one-twentieth increase in strength, uh, which is might be equivalent of micro-loading for reps, um, which I think is useful to do those high reps sometimes. So there's, there's a lot of reasons to be going from different repetition ranges and in, in different mesocycles. I don't know that one is necessarily wrong or better than the other. It just comes down to practicality. Um, uh, I often will follow a pattern where I'm doing that kind of linear progression for intermediates and in within mesocycles. And then I'll sometimes use the increase in volume by adding sets for volume blocks for advanced lifters. And then I'll go to that, that declining uh, uh, setup during their intensity cycle. Um, and then I think, uh, is this going to come out before or after the deload talk? This will be after deload. It well is a week that, uh, today, uh, a week this week, um, but not for when this comes out. <laughs> okay, cool. So they will have already listened to our deload talk before they hit this mm -hmm. um, for fatigue management, which is part of periodization. Everything we said there, insert into what I just said there, and now you have the fusion of the concepts, and I think that pretty much covers everything. Oh, okay. So here, here's a toughie. Um, we kind of touched on this with training in different repetition ranges. Uh, we have some not great data showing, we have theoretical reasons why you probably just don't want to stay in one repetition range all the time. Uh, and then we have, you know, it as a changing repetition ranges as a method to kind of uh, manage fatigue or maybe prevent anabolic resistance, like Mike, Mike might say, uh, also kind of theoretical, but makes sense. Uh, and then the one thing we didn't really touch on is that it is, it's, it's possible, well, this kind of goes into genotype, that different fiber type distributions or fibers might even respond differently. Like, sure, if you do a set of 30 to failure, uh, you're going to end up recruiting everything and you'll get to a point where you can no longer produce force to do rep 31. But we don't know if when those fast twitch fibers are cycled in to keep that force going, if they've been exposed enough, enough of a stimulus by the end to get a similar training effect to if you did a six rep max where they're going to be firing right from the start, staying in and then doing as much as they can. Likewise, even though the sides principle tells us that when you do that six rep max, everything gets recruited from the start. There may not be enough time for those slow fatiguing, slow twitch fibers to get trained by a six RM. We don't know if that's the case. And I would say right now, the data wouldn't even actually indicate that. Uh, there was a study that came out last year, and it looked at the cellular response to doing basically AMRAPs with 80% or a very low percentage, maybe 30%, I'm not sure. Uh, and they were not different um, in terms of the, the actual cellular processes of hypertrophy. However, 80% is not really, this was like a leg extension. So they did like 18 reps on their first set on average. So it was like 18 versus like 50 or something crazy. So it wasn't like six versus 30, you know, which is something I'd love to see. So maybe it doesn't matter, but at the same time, we're also analyzing these at a group level. Like maybe if we did a biopsy of everybody and then did like uh, quartiles and looked at changes of like who's the most fast switch, who's the most slow twitch, and how do they respond in those, instead of just looking kind of at broad group level, you'd see something. So I think for a lot of reasons, it makes sense to train in different repetition training zones, even if let's say two out of those three hypotheses are incorrect. And it, 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 they are actually the same, whether you do a six RM, a 30 RM, everything gets trained. Uh, and let's also say 
uh, that getting stronger doesn't help you get bigger because maybe as the fiber grows, it's the same rough tension distribution over the, over the fiber. Then still for, for adherence, uh, injury prevention, fatigue management, a lot of things you probably want to at least split it up a little, little bit. It might look a little different. Like let's say that, that hypothesis I just gave was true and those two things are, are, are not happening. Maybe you could train in the, you could have cycles of eight to 12 training and 12 to 15 training and you'd never need to go heavy. Sure, you'd still want to vary your rep ranges a little bit for, for, for those reasons and progression is easier in higher reps and coming back down to get a little more neural efficiency and you know maybe capillary density from the higher rep stuff. I could see there's still an argument to, to switch it up. So I think regardless, uh, that, 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 that should be a, a portion of your quote-unquote periodization as well, training across a spectrum of rep ranges. And I think that covers everything. Perfect. No, it's really nice to hear. And uh, I think a, a big takeaway for the listeners is as you get more advanced, periodization probably has more of a role and a big role is fatigue management. Um, I think that's key. And you kind of talked about it. Everyone has talked about it with the reps and reserve and how important that is. And then the deload, when, that, when people listen to that, they'll understand how important that aspect of training is as well. And I do want to pass it over to Menno to hear if you've got any other different thoughts on how you might periodize for hypertrophy, whether you have any different ways of doing this for your clients. Mm -hmm. yeah, I'll start off with one slight tangent um, in that uh, that's related to uh, some of the topics we discussed, including periodization. One thing that is very difficult about the exercise science literature and why it, this is literature where it's very important to read the exact methods, although they're often not well reported, is that a lot of studies just claim very easily all sets were taken to failure, and they are very unclear about whether progressive overload was pushed and whether the trainees were motivated for it. So a lot of studies will say, you know, we increased the load whenever they had 12 reps, but did they actually tell the participants you got to aim for more reps or more weight because if you don't a lot of people will sort of stay in their comfort zone and you don't aim for progressive overload at all that you know kind of renders the whole program invalid for a lot of uh, for more advanced trainees at least and the training to failure issue is as uh, mike alluded to a lot of studies are like yeah we did four sets of squats to failure and i'm like that's the point where i'm calling bullshit because <laughs> They're, they're like, you know, these studies subjects. Uh, we recruited 23 elderly untrained participants or some recreationally active women. And they're like, yeah, we have them squat to failure. No way. <laughs> no way. You know, squatting to failure is, I can count on like one hand the amount of people that I see just um, being able to squat truly to failure. Like not just, you know, I, I have a fair amount of clients that are pretty hardcore and will dump the barbell because they know this will be a grind from hell to get the weight up, but they could probably do it. But truly hitting failure, actually trying and failing during like a leg press or a squat, that is excruciating. So it, it's really questionable in all these studies what the, the level of effort and true proximity to failure uh, and periodization was. Um, that aside, um, I think um, I fully agree with uh, Eric about uh, all the main points. Um, I, I like to use daily undulating periodization as uh, my, my most used periodization methods probably because the two studies that point to periodization having positive effects, um, one by Brad Schoenfeld and the other by 
not sure what the name was, but they had daily undulating periodization, linear and no periodization, Brazilian research, I'm quite sure. And they, um, they found that linear had a slight trend of outperforming the no periodization group and the daily undulating periodization group had a, well, I think a 0.2 effect size greater, like 0.5 versus 0.7, which is substantial for uh, advanced trainees, like practically relevant. So, but most research doesn't really find any benefit, but as Eric said, you know, there's a multitude of reasons why you still want to at least rotate through rep ranges or alternate them. Um, so I like that a lot, daily undulating periodization. I think weekly undulating is, is a bit weird because then you have possibly two or more sessions with the same rep range and then you switch to a different rep range and the next week you do the same. So you don't really take advantage of the possible fatigue management you get if you sandwich workouts closely together but have different rep ranges. Uh, if you try to do like that study I mentioned with training frequency, if you try to do the same exercise for the same amount of reps day in, day out, then you very quickly get stuck in practice. And once you're past the novice level, at least. Um, linear periodization, uh, I like it for powerlifters, uh, like increasing the intensity, you know, sort of as a taper for the meat. Uh, and um, the very few Olympic weightlifters and CrossFit trainees I work with. Uh, not really for bodybuilding, I'm not very sold. I think literature there is like, Really, really unconvincing. Um, auto regulation is a big, big thing. I think is important for periodization. Uh, there are still a lot of periodization studies and practitioners that sort of try to make a whole program two months in advance, everything planned out neatly, and it looks great and it may work on average really well. But there's a lot of individuals who you do the programming like 80% times three reps that. Uh, it will just be too light, and for other people, that may actually be close to failure. So I think that really um, does not take into account the uh, the individual individualization aspect, uh, which is, I think, as I'm getting more experience as a coach, becoming more and more convinced that is really important, um, especially for the people that, the sort of hard gainers, where they come to you and they're like, they tried the standard stuff and it didn't work, and uh, it seems they actually respond differently, or they need like a a pretty significantly different approach than uh, the average person. Uh, so I think that that's important. Uh, strategies like repetitions in reserve um, or noting the proximity to failure, deloads like the last topic or reactive deloading alike, um, auto-regulatory volume training. I think we also discussed that uh, in that podcast. Um, so these kind of strategies and aiming for progressive overload, that's really important. And a lot of the other periodization is just whatever works, um, as Eric said, to facilitate progressive overload. Because there's one thing, if you know, um, if you're not getting stronger on the exercise in your program, you can be pretty sure you're not getting bigger. Like it's, it's very possible to get stronger, but not bigger because it's just neural adaptations. But if you're not getting stronger, then it's highly unlikely you're getting bigger because all else equal, a higher muscle cross-sectional area means higher force output. So um, that probably means you're not getting muscle growth either. So whether you actually do gain muscle growth when you change the program and gain more strength is not certain, but you are damn certain you're not going anywhere if uh, you're just stuck uh, and not changing anything. Perfect. And um, I don't know if, Mike, you have any different thoughts on any of that. And if not, then we can talk about kind of just the final thing I would like to touch on is kind of making sure you're making progress. So men has already touched on kind of getting stronger as an element of assessing whether you've actually, whether you need to change anything. Um, so yeah, I'll let you kind of touch on your periodization thoughts, Mike. Yeah, real quick. Um, just a couple thoughts. 
The fiber type uh, hypertrophy studies where we try to find out if different fiber types hypertrophy um, differently based on different loading. Uh, a little bit of a waste of time in the untrained because we know pretty well already from a lot of data that the untrained are usually maxing out their adaptive response anyway. Um, and it's really difficult to believe that um, you're going to notice differences when fiber types uh, are all being so super stimulated relative to their potential for growth. Uh, so, you know, sets of 30 may very well maximize both fast and slow twitch fiber hypertrophy or faster and slower. Or beginners from whom everything maximizes fiber hypertrophy of all kinds or intermediate and vast individuals, I'm not inclined to assume that that's the case, though it may be, um, but I don't think that's very good evidence for that. Um, so we just, just have to point that out that, um, again, there's huge limitations of studies on the untrained and inferring fiber type is one of those. In case anyone ever doubts the, the limited power of untrained studies, there's actually a literature review, and I can send it out, that shows that aerobic training gives similar muscular size adaptations to resistance training. It's a real review, real inclusive, actually a very good review in the sense that it includes plenty of relevant studies. And it turns out if you just run people on a treadmill when they were super beginners, they grow a lot of muscle. Um, so it becomes really you know, difficult to conclude a whole lot uh, difference-wise, especially with fiber types, uh, because you literally get fast-twitch fiber growth in those individuals fucking running how the hell are you jogging you know, how the hell are they doing that well you know and you you haven't never you know walked around for longer than five kilometers it starts to be very interesting for you to jog at all and your fibers are like fuck so it's totally maxed out so just really quick to touch on a couple of things i think that there's definitely a good argument for varying rep ranges within the microcycle so that uh, a dup type of thing is i think good I think that uh, there's also good reason to vary rep ranges between mesocycles uh, for at least one reason, other than psychology and adherence, which is good, a good reason, is that if you train really, really heavy, you know, sets of sort of six to ten, then you accumulate uh, quite a bit of uh, damage to connective tissues, not uh, damage that's bad as necessarily, but could get out of hand if you continued. I think um, because we know that damage like that to connective tissues with poor circulation takes not days, but weeks to heal. I think phases of higher repetitions, lighter weights without a lot of heavy training in them should last a mesocycle or longer. So I think while it's totally cool to have variation within the week uh, of, you know, let's say sets of eight and sets of 20 in the same week, I think there has to be mesocycle variation as well. Also, especially for more advanced individuals where you may train in the six to 12, uh, you know, rep range for three mesocycles in a row and it take at least one mesocycle after that, maybe in the 20 to 30 rep range or something like that. Uh, and then what that allows you to do is really back away from a real connective tissue disruption uh, that's more significant and heal up while you still get hypertrophic benefits. I think that kind of thing is a good idea. But I don't think it goes far enough. So I think it, um, every now and again, a, a much lower volume phase is uh, probably a good idea for a couple of reasons. Um, so one, I think there's a resensitization effect and definitely a fatigue management effect, but that's been pretty well covered. I, I'm, I'm uh, inclined to believe that there is a resensitization effect for a couple of reasons. One, psychology, where you can only push it and train super hard long enough until you need a pretty extended break of not pushing it hard. Um, Mm. The more advanced you get, the longer these breaks tend to need to be. 
um, because training is harder. Um, I think there's a pretty convincing line of reasoning to think that you can transition fiber types within the period of a mesocycle or so to some small extent from slower acting to faster acting. And because faster twitch fibers tend to hypertrophy more, I think that when you exhibit, do a very lower, much lower volume phase with higher intensities, of course, that you can do some fiber transition during that phase. And when you come back and start pumping up the volume after that, you can actually get for a short time higher levels of holy shit that was um higher levels of growth for a what short time that time? <laughs> <laughs> just making race car noises in, in your own mouth so um uh you know so basically like if you do low volumes for long enough i think you can get some fiber uh, conversion uh and basically uh, experience uh, the growth effects of a slightly more fast twitch individual for several weeks at least coming back um, also there, are uh, we know that metabolites through whatever pathway, whether it's tension based or otherwise have an effect. We also know that if you train with high volumes long enough, you get a lot of really good peripheral vasculature and it lowers your ability to at any one given volume exhibit the generation and sequestration of lots of metabolites. So I think if you go through a lower volume phase and you come back and we've all experienced this, you get super crazy mega pump and super crazy metabolites because you're like, oh my fucking God, I'm not in shape to do this anymore. And that's actually maybe a good thing in a sense because you can it, it get a better metabolite load at lower volumes. And then lastly, um, this hasn't been mentioned yet, but the muscle pump itself or intracellular swelling has been pretty convincingly uh, um, connected to muscle growth. Um, and I think that, that uh, you get way better pumps after a lower volume phase than before, again, through some of those same ca capillary factors and fiber conversions. So if you come back after lower volume phase with a slightly faster twitch fiber type, slightly poor vascularization, I think you're uh, apt to get better pumps. And I think those better pumps make you grow more muscle just by a teensy, teensy little bit. So I think if you're any beginner or intermediate, I think this kind of periodization is probably a good bit of a waste of your time, especially if you do it too often. As you come more advanced, I think there's a pretty decent argument along those lines and a couple others that every now and again, a month or so of much lower volume, basically strength training is a good idea to resensitize. You know, if it turns out that strength training enhances hypertrophy later on, this is just going to be a closed case, but it's not, you know, that's not so, so clear yet. So I think it's still with those factors I mentioned, I'd bet that it's a good idea to do, you know, a low volume phase every now and again, if you add in the fatigue management effects, I think every six months to a year for more advanced individuals, a month or so, at least a couple of weeks of significantly lower volumes, uh, are probably a good idea. Cool. And I think we might, we might have touched on that in a deload in the deloads kind of podcast where you talk about active recovery phases. Otherwise we've definitely covered it in podcasts with you before Mike. So I think that's brilliant. I know Menno has to leave fairly soon. So I do want to just make sure that Menno said his piece and everything that you wanted to say. I decided if you have any kind of comments, on what Mike said there. Um, yeah, I'd add that the, um, I'd agree that the, there is decent support for the idea that you can get, uh, fiber type specific hypertrophy. Uh, it's not consistent by any means, as Eric said, um, but there's one study from Popov in Russia, and I think two more that in Russian that found um, specific type one growth at higher reps and more type two growth at lower reps. And Brad Schoenfeld's meta-analysis found a trend for the same, at, but it was only at the 90 and the 30% range. So when you really go to the outer ends of the hypertrophy zone that you um, induce preferential fiber growth. And we do know from, um, <clears throat> we know from a long time from Fly's review that uh, bodybuilders have 
more growth in the type one fibers than powerlifters and uh, um, Olympic weightlifters. So that's at least cross-sectional evidence that uh, it may be possible to preferentially recruit uh, and grow the type one fibers uh, with higher reps. Uh, so um, I think that there is something there, but it's it's by no means uh, major and it, based on Schoenfeld's meta-analysis, it probably requires really going to the ends of the hypertrophy range where you get these uh, specific effects. Like it won't be much of a difference between, you know, eight and nine reps. Um, one other thing that actually I haven't mentioned is that um, uh, at Beijing Bodybuilding, we're conducting a meta-analysis on training volume, uh, but we're reanalyzing it. Uh, we have two, uh, one finding is really cool, I think, because for the first time we have, um, we can actually show that the dose response differs between untrained and trained individuals, which is something that coaches have been saying for decades. But uh, if you actually look at the lines um, in the, for the effect size plots, like they're, they're pretty dissimilar. It's, it's very um, obvious that it's not the same dose response. Uh, so that's a cool finding. And um, of course, the other thing is that we're trying to tease out the, the end of the, uh, the optimal amount of sets. Um, but we're actually reanalyzing that because if you look at the, more advanced trainees, you actually get kind of shockingly high numbers in uh, terms of the effect sizes that seem to sort of progress like more or less linearly, like in the 20, 30 uh, set zone, uh, but that involves some cross-sectional comparisons. So uh, there's the, um, the more direct one from the, um, um, the German volume training study. And I think it's been replicated as well already, but not published that found if you're uh, the German volume, the 10 times 10 group actually gained less muscle growth than the five times five group. So if you calculate the amount of sets in that study, you're looking at something like 30 or in the, in the high twenties for the 10 times 10 group, at least for some of the muscles, depending on which muscle you look at. Um, so that's some evidence against this ID, but, um, I look forward to uh, sharing that at least, but uh, I can't say much more about it now. Cause like I say, we're, we have to reanalyze it. Awesome. No, really interesting. And um, I, I can't wait for that to come out as, as well as I'm sure all the listeners as well. So yeah, thank you, Benno. And if, if you do need to go at any point, feel free to, um, to leave. And I, the, other guys, the other guys can decide whether they want to hang on and say anything else or uh, leave as well. But um, oh, Mike's got something to say. So I'll uh, hand over to Mike. Man, I'm really excited about your review. And um, as you guys are doing the bang up job over there, um, there is a study that I'm involved with currently as a, a dissertation committee member that is designed to find people's MRV. And I can't say too much about it, but, and I'm not sure if we found it, but if we got close, it's fucking high. <laughs> um, it's higher than, I would have died if I was a subject participant. I would have simply deceased. Um, but, um, I also think that there is a, uh, just, just, just as tangent, there's a very big difference between a volume you can creep up to hit and back off versus a sustainable volume. Mm -hmm. uh, because, uh, in, you know, whether you use the sustainable volume approach of Eric and you modulate more intensity or whether you use my alterating volume but coming back up and down, it gets about the same average. Um, or Menno's method of microloading and staying really close to this one thing. I don't think any of us are advocating up here, <laughs> you know, like that, that's uh, really important because as soon as that study that I'm involved with 
is going to come out, people are going to be like, sweet, I can do 35 sets a week and not die. And it's like, yeah, for a week, totally. For two weeks, <laughs> half of you will die. At three weeks, all of you will, you know what I mean? So it's, it's one of those things like you, and it comes down to, you know, interpreting the research. And there's, I think, maybe not an ethical thing involved, but I think when a lot of people have their, you know, fitness websites and stuff, like Menno, for example, Whenever he does a write-up on a study and I repost it, half the people comment on Facebook are like, TLDR, bro. I'm like, I'm going to murder you. I'm going to come to your house and beat the fucking shit out of you because there is no TLDR. There is that much nuance. So I'm just going to fuck with people. TLDR, train as much as you can. And I'm just going to link them to that one guy on Instagram that says that, you know, so uh, because of the, the, the nuance involved, we've we, we got to be really clear about this. And I think it's on evidence-based folks that are sharing these studies, et cetera, discussions to do like a Menno-esque job in describing them because the devil is often very much in the details. And what you can peek to is not the same fucking thing that what you can do for, you know, 10 weeks or even three weeks. What do you guys think about that? No, I, I would agree. Like, in mass, our research review, we try to make it as short as possible when we review a study, but still not that short, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. And, and no, I, I would totally agree. There's a huge difference between the maximum amount of volume you can do for a short period of time. Uh, and that's the whole reason overreaching is a thing, right? Um, and, and the sustainable amount of volume one can do. So I would, I would echo that hundred percent. I'm actually not sure if it's muscular, but I do think, um, there is a discrepancy in the connective tissue and muscular possible uh, recovery capacity. Because I think when a muscle can recover from a certain volume, actually it can recover and supercompensate. It can recover from that this session, but also the next session. But it doesn't mean that your connective tissue has um, recovered as well. Because you can still you can still get stronger. Your muscle may have gotten bigger, but underneath the tendon may be degenerating. So until the tendon actually degenerates to the extent that it's manifest a strength loss, you won't notice that. So I think that is a, a big reason um, for the, the need to, like Mike said, maybe do higher rep phases uh, or periodize. Um, so, the, you know, the take home is the same, but uh, I just don't think it's, it's muscular. Perfect. And um, I don't know if you guys want to touch on briefly kind of ways of assessing whether you need to make a change. So whether the program's worked for you. Um, I don't know if, um, I don't know if Menno's got time enough to summarize whether um, you know how your program's working, whether you need to make a change um, before you leave. All right. So I got two minutes. Um, you, you sort of, you sort of, I sort of gave the cliff notes answer. Um, if it works, you may want to change it, optimize it a bit, but don't fix what isn't broken. And if it doesn't work, definitely change it because I think actually writing an article um, about um, reasons my online coaching won't work for you. And one of the top reasons is you're not willing to change anything. There are some people that they want different results, but they want to keep doing the same thing. And that's not going to happen. If you do the same thing, you're going to get the same results because nature is kind of merciless like that. So, um, I think for a program that is the big key and a lot of things as well, like people ask me, uh, how low should I go in body fat percentage? Well, we know that there is a low end where you don't want to go below cause it will, you know, have reduced anabolic hormone levels and the like, but it varies a lot between individuals. I have some clients, they are shredded as fuck, like all year round and they, they feel fine. They have good libido. They make good strength gains. They never get injured. I'm like, you lucky motherfucker. But other people. 
uh, you know, when they get to six-pack level range, they already start having libido problems and the like, and you see their strength progression wane. You can see in the ratio, for example, of caliper to weight, which I really like, especially if someone gets sort of gets too fat to the high uh, range where chronic inflammation, nutrient partitioning, uh, aromatization to estrogen, those kind of factors may come into play. You see that they very easily gain weight, but the calipers go up a lot. So it's almost impossible for them to still gain weight without fat as well, which indicates to me that they're probably not lean bulking very efficiently. So it's more these factors that I look at, and especially strength gains. Okay, I got zero minutes. One thing um, uh, that I pay a lot of attention to is strength, because in my experience, I'm going to be a little crude here, but um, most other means of progress just don't work very well in my experience. Like density training and stuff, it all sounds really nice on paper, but in my experience, if you just don't get people a lot stronger, it doesn't really tend to show up in muscle growth. So a lot of programs, over the course of a year, if you look at the photos before and after, and you know, one RMs in strength, not much has really changed. Like they've built up work capacity or uh, those kind of things. But in the end, it's strongly my experience that if you get someone really strong without you know, a true powerlifting program, just get them strong at accessory lifts and everything, they will grow. But uh, any other means of progress are more hit or miss. And that's it. I got to go to my consult. Uh, I'm out. You can discuss that. And uh, I'll see what you, you have to say about it later. Cheers, man. Uh, See ya. I can't cool. wait to talk some massive shit about Mano now. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> so I don't know. never leave. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if uh, Mike, you want to touch on kind of how you're assessing progress, whether you need to make a change. If you got any comments on kind of what uh, Menno said there. Yeah, oh, he said some good stuff. So uh, the strength measurement stuff is hundred percent on the money. Um, you don't, I'll just say one thing. You don't have to do formal RM testing because you should be hitting one from fail every month or so anyway in your programming. So automatically like your peak week numbers, you should be writing at least those down in your journal and comparing them over the mesocycles and over the years. There's a really important, uh, argument there for good technique and standardization of technique, which is why I bent row to the floor and all the way to the tummy and don't cheat because I want to know if my back's getting bigger. Uh, motherfucker's hard to see back there, you know, and pictures only do so much. Um, so it's good standardized technique and you're getting stronger. I think the kind of strength that most reflects hypertrophy is a little fiber type dependent, but, um, in the six to 20 rep range or even maybe six to 30 for multiple sets, especially because I think work capacity and muscle size have a lot of crossover, um, you can see this in cyclists, uh, velodrome cyclists have incredible work capacities and gigantic quads and so on and so forth. So I think that what you can do for one set is uh, important and correlated to hypertrophy, like a set of 10, but your five by 10 or something like that, or your five sets, how many reps total you can get at whatever weight, I think that is really well correlated. So show me a guy that can bench, you know, 365 pounds for eight versus a guy that can bench 405 for eight. The 405 for eight guy will probably have a bigger chest. But show me a guy who over four sets can do 40 reps with 405 versus a guy that can do 20 reps with 405, and a 40-rep guy is going to have fucking bigger packs every time. We also see this particularly with bodybuilders versus powerlifters. A bodybuilder is not necessarily stronger than powerlifter sets of like five and stuff, and even sometimes for sets of 10. 
Um, but bodybuilders can just fucking keep doing sets of really fucking heavy weight. It's really impressive. So like if you're inclining 405 pounds for sets of 10, there's no way you don't have big packs, just plain and simple. Right. But if you, even if you bench 500, some of those guys have like deceptively smaller pecs than you would think. You try to get them to do some volume work and it looks like their volume capacities aren't that great. So I think the ability to do heavy volume over multiple sets is really what correlates with hypertrophy. The best of our weightlifting or our strength measures at the gym, I think that's the most important point to pay attention to. It also gets folks away from doing crazy RMs like, all right, last time I hit 315 pounds for 12, six months ago, I got to hit it for at least 16 and they start to break down their technique or grind shit because it's just all one, one set. I mean, it's a minor issue. It takes, you know, you can just solve that issue with a good hard talking to and tell people not to do that. But I think when you tell them, look, just do multiple sets, one rough from failure, and we'll take a look at the result after it's at some point it, you, you kind of realize, oh, wow, I really, I really am what bodybuilders call handling the weight a lot easier. You know what I mean? Um, it just do more reps over time. Um, and then just real quick, um, there's a lot of ways to measure, uh, you know, so the way to measure maximum recoverable volume, if you're interested in, 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 in not just progress, but what to do about it. So let's say you're not progressing. Maybe you're training over your MRV too often. So what is your MRV? Well, you know, uh, if you get to a certain level of volume and your performance in that same multiple sets range starts to fall every time you get to, let's say, 20 sets in, uh, of back work. And every time you go over 20, your performance starts to slide, starts to slide, starts to slide. You're probably not, it's not probably not productive for you. You're probably, your MRV is around 20. It's probably not productive to train more, right? Um, but another question we'd be getting a, a lot at RP Plus is how do you tell what your minimum effective volume is, right? Where to start your mesocycles or may, maybe let's say you're injured or your fatigue is really high and you want to know, okay, I still want to bring up this body pressure, I want to train it, but I don't want to push it as hard as I know it can go. Um, maybe I could push it a little lower and still get good results. Um, or at the very least, how do I put it on the back burner? Because, you know, you don't want to put something on the back burner and have it cool off completely. It's too little volume. So how do you tell your minimum effective volume? There's a, a good series of three proxy measurements and one definite measurement. A definite measurement is you do multiple mesocycles of it in a row with a certain low volume, like 10, and you measure performance at the uh, throughout and at the end of that. And if performance gained a little bit, clearly it's above your minimum effective volumes by definition, right? You, um, But if it's stabilized, then it's like sort of maintenance volume or it's below your minimum effective volume for sure. And if it went down, well, then that's below maintenance volume, right? But that's pretty hard to do. And especially if you're not de-emphasizing any body parts, you're not going to run three mesocycles in a row intentionally at minimum effective volume because you could just be getting better gains. So I think uh, every mesocycle that you start out and try to work up, you know, from your minimum effective volume to your maximum recoverable, a cool sort of three proxy method is, are you getting sore? Um, how Are you working relatively hard? And are you getting a pump? So for example, in that first week where you're trying to hit minimum effective volume, or you're trying to find yours and you don't want to go through that whole long measurement process, let's say you do... Uh, something that's above your minimum effective volume or at it. Let's pretend that that's 10 sets a week. Let's say you do 10 sets a week. You look back over the week. You go, okay, was I getting pumps? Uh, yes or no? Like a fucking pump. Was, am, was I getting sore at all? And uh, was like, am I like after these workouts that I'm doing or the whole week together, was there a perception that I'm putting in some decent work? Like I'm working pretty hard, not super hard, just like am I making an effort? 
if the answer to all three of those is no, like imagine you did a program and, and you got no soreness whatsoever, which is okay by itself. It doesn't relate to growth that predictably uh, at all. Um, uh, but you got no pump. Like you literally never had a pump in the gym and you felt like you were just breezing through everything and you just were never trying. I'd be willing to bet that's below your minimum effective volume. There's just no evidence of an effect whatsoever that it, you're just, just any physiological disruption whatsoever that you're growing muscle. If a couple of those are there and one isn't, you're probably around your minimum effective volume. If all three of them are there at minimum, then you're at or above your minimum effective volume. And for sure, if, if it's a religious effort, if you're getting super fucking sore and, and or your pumps are wild, I mean, you're clearly just way above your minimum effective volume. So that's how I would use those proxy measures. So if anyone's listening is kind of interested in that question of how do I know I'm doing enough? Well, if you can check some of those boxes and not all of them, like you can never be sore. But if you're like for back training or delt training, you just never get sore. The muscle is just not designed in a mechanical way that's going to get doms unless you do crazy volume over MRV. Um, are you getting pumps um, and are you perceiving like you're doing like a bit of effort? If yes, then yeah, you're probably doing enough, right? But if you can – the big one is if you – can say with all three of those no 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 then man you i just wouldn't bet you're doing enough to grow um, unless you have good evidence from long-term tracking otherwise that demonstrates that so that there's my piece on that no brilliant i think that's really helpful especially kind of the it's quite an easy thing for people to conceptualize kind of um the minimum effective volume and go into the gym and really kind of analyze that for themselves and as we know you need overload to produce hypertrophy that's kind of a right. given so um if it's not hard at all then yeah there's there's something right it's like the, the fundamental question of all three of those proxies is kind of leading to the one big question of are you getting a workout <laughs> yeah. do you feel like you're getting a workout if the answer is like no never and you're honest then man yeah i I just wouldn't bet anyone past and beginner is going to grow from anything like that. Perfect. And uh, Eric, have you got any other thoughts on kind of measuring using strength as a tool? I know within the muscle and strength pyramid, you kind of utilize some uh, tools within there. Yeah, I, I think strength is probably 90% of what I pay attention to. And then subjective markers recovery after that. Um, and there's a lot of ways to do that. Yeah. I've, I think I, I've advocated AMRAPs many times, um, and I think that's useful because it's a nice systematic way to know that you're getting stronger. But the reality is, is if you're getting stronger in your training load, you already know. Um, so AMRAPs are an optional tool, which is something that will, will probably be changed in my, my second edition of the books, just because I think people get really hung up on that one number. Uh, and um, and, they, and they do weird stuff as they lead up into it. Um, that, that, that's, Can I deload before my AMRAP test? And you're like, no. <laughs> and they're like, but I want to do well. I'm like, I understand that, but that's not anyway. You know what I'm talking yeah. about? Yeah, I, because so much hangs on it emotionally, they, they make odd decisions. So yeah, I think uh, the, the only time it's difficult to see whether you're, you're progressing is in your training loads is when you're you're relatively advanced. And then I think you have to look at maybe you do a mesocycle of higher volume training where you're just kind of you're your performance is doing this basically because you're, you're fatiguing yourself. And then when you go into your next mesocycle, when you drop your volume down, uh, you should have an imbalance to recovery and fatigue favoring recovery, but not to the point where you're detraining. And then you should start to actually see uh, some progress as you're lifting heavier loads. Um, and, uh, and yeah, that, 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 that's probably the, the equivalent for a more advanced lifter. Uh, and that can, or doesn't have to include, AMRAPs, but I, I think for an advanced, advanced lifter can probably get away with AMRAPs because they're going to be, um, 
with their experience, they're going to be less ridiculous about the decisions they make around AMRAPs. Um, and they're going to be able to do it in a more consistent state. Uh, and they've had a little more time in the game just to not bet their whole life on a single day uh, or even a single set. So uh, I think, um, I think that that's where I would probably still use those. And then I would say that um, the proxies Mike gave, I would just caution people to make sure that other things are also held static for you to be comparing those. Like you go on a calorie deficit or if you're cutting or if you go low carbs all of a sudden, or if you're eating super clean and your sodium goes down, you're just not going to get it. Like you don't get pumps during prep at a certain point. It almost doesn't matter what you do. But I would and say that also means you're not growing because <laughs> you don't grow during true. prep either. This is true. Well, maybe you don't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, but yeah, so if, if you yeah, just be aware that if, if your nutrition is all over the place or if you're, um, and also that the context of all those different measures you, you mentioned, they should be within when your other training uh, variables are fixed. Like if your frequency and intensity are training, if your frequency and intensity are changing um, and you're trying to uh, gauge your, your, your appropriate volume level, how, how can you do that? You know, because 10 sets of five is way different than 10 sets of 20 in terms of uh, stressing different things and what you can recover from. So I, I would just caution that um, the more of a proxy measure you use, um, which I would say even strength is actually a proxy measure, uh, the more you need to make sure that you're comparing like to like, um, just, just to, to get my scientist out there. So. Perfect. No, I really like that. Uh, an assessment of kind of strength gains within the hyper hypertrophy uh, rep range or the traditionally thought hypertrophy rep range and specifically kind of volume PRs. Um, and I don't know if you guys have heard uh, James Krieger has spoken about. Yes. Um, kind on, of on Sigma nutrition. Yeah, for isolation movements. So kind of using those because obviously there's no neurological kind of efficiency there. So I thought that was really interesting kind of insight from James. Yeah, I don't know if you guys, yeah, that, I, I, was, I really want to see that paper come out, but I, I believe James said that looking at like the, basically the total work done over multiple sets on isolation movement had the highest correlation to hypertrophy, which makes a lot of sense when you think about it. You can only get so good at a machine curl, right? Um, and, and yeah, it, it combines both factors of greater force production from a larger fiber and also... Uh, the ability to buffer fatigue from all the other stuff that comes with hypertrophy. So, mm. perfect. I think that might be a wrap, unless anyone, unless you've got anything else to say, Mike or Eric. Or... Oh, oh, I've got lots. <laughs> I've got days of shit to say, my friend. And I use the term friend sarcastically. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't no, know, I'm Steve, good. If you want to wrap that up, I'm good. <laughs> I will say thank you to you both and goodbye to the listeners and uh, welcome any comments or questions from them um, as well. Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve.